You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, it is UFC 254 Fight Week. You know what that means. It's time to kick the tires and light the fires one more time on a co-main event Patreon fight party. This is going down. It's going down? Saturday. Main card of UFC 254 kicks off at noon here in the one true time zone. So maybe all the lucky little co-maniacs out there who sign up to be part of the UFC 254 fight party will get to see, I don't know, our children running around, climbing all yeah. over us. Noontime, it's, it's going to be a high traffic, high traffic area, probably at both of our households. So that'll be I, an interesting thing to do. I guarantee you two things at this UFC 254. Matter of fact, no. I'm gonna guarantee you three things. Oh wow, three guarantees. That's that's nothing three. to uh, that's nothing to sneeze at. That's nothing nothing to overlook. Three things for this UFC 254 live watch party with the CME. One, my kids will make an appearance. Okay, and whether whether I want them to or not, that's just gonna happen. Fights going off around noon. There's just no way. Ain't no way you're keeping them off of that that Zoom cam. Uh, promise number two. I will have an alcoholic beverage in the daylight hours. Wow. Okay. Regardless of anything else that's going on. I mean, if it's a, if we're doing a live watch party, I'm not going to be Chad, Chad Dundason up here with my gallon of water. Like I'm a eighties pro wrestler coming back from the gym. Guarantee number three, my hype levels, as long as this card is not subject to too much change between now and then, I mean, we'll be through, through the damn roof. Chad Dundas. I'm hyped for this one. I don't know. What are your current hype levels? Uh, My hype levels got a lot higher now that I found out you're going to be getting daytime drunk while we watch this thing. I'm I'm thinking. That's not what I said. That's not what I said. Maybe we we extend the watch party so that we can have a camera follow you throughout the night to find out how this ends for you. To to watch me uh, once again, watching 15 minutes of spy game via some like streaming service and then passing out. I mean, maybe I'll just I'll make a video of it the next morning when I have to drive across town to bail you out of jail and we'll put that up on the Patreon so people can people can get a real beginning, middle and end feel to your journey on Saturday. Listen, one good thing about this pandemic is it's really brought my chances of being thrown in jail way down because I got to leave the house typically for something like that to happen these days. Hardly ever leave in the house. And so they're going to have to come get me is what I'm saying. (laughs) They want to put me in the pokey. You're going to have to come get Ben folks. And he's well, not is, going easily. This is quite the sell. Uh, remember, if you want to get down with the CME UFC 254 fight party, all you got to do is go over to patreon.com slash co-main event and sign up to be part of the team. All levels of patrons can That's gain right. access to the fight party. That's the $1 Everybody. level, the $5 level, the $10 level. We will be posting the uh, sign-up sheet for that you know, probably today, as far as I know, now that we've done the announcement. Got to yeah. shout out our buddy Ryan up there in Canada. Uh, he helps us out with these things, and so he's going to be on hand on Saturday to make sure everything goes smoothly with the fight party. Should be a lot of fun, as Ben noted. Hell of a card about to jump off over there at the Flash Forum 
in Abu Dhabi. So I am excited about that. Also, Chad, I mean, people will remember from last week's proper, the Patreon pledge drive that we're doing right now, trying to get to what is it? 1139 in patrons. 1149 in patrons. You're trying to cheat. Okay. I see what you've Uh, done, bid. Are you sure it's 11? Okay. I I wrote it down, motherfucker, because I know how you operate. I wrote it down. We're at we're at 1,081 patrons right now and a few upgrades. So those upgrades don't count because we also have a bunch of count. No, we have a bunch of downgrades also, fool. So we're not doing that. That's off the table. It's only new patrons. It's only new patrons. Well, we're going to check the contract. We're going to check with the record, bud. Uh, but I mean, we're, we're gaining patrons. I, we still got some ways to go until Halloween. Yeah. You're creeping. I think I can feel you creeping. I'm looking yeah. over my shoulder right now. Cause I can feel those numbers start to creep up. You got a ways yeah. to go yet, but, uh, but it's, I'm feeling the heat. I'm, I'm looking, I feel like a member of the ghetto boys right now. You know how Halloween went for those guys. Yeah. It didn't go great. I'm starting to feel but the same it, way. Wait a minute. When they did, they later realized that it wasn't even close to Halloween. That's so true. like that. Yeah. Just that really kind of throws off the timeline for me. So, yeah. yeah, you're creeping. It's gonna things that might get interesting here in the next couple of weeks. So if you want to get down with any and all of that fun, like I said, patreon.patreon.com slash co main event. Also, uh, do I have to mention that it is your boy's 41st birthday, the day after USC 250 tour 254? You know what I really want for my birthday, Chad? What's that? About 70 new patrons. Okay. To the co-main event Patreon so we can make Chad Dundas watch Hereditary and then have a sleepless night where he is scared out of his wits. See, I knew if you were going to voluntarily so, bring up your birthday, you might you must have an angle that you were working on. I got an there. angle. So, yeah. there you Otherwise, go. I'd never tell anybody. I got an angle, too. If you haven't already, I'd like to uh, invite you to go out and grab a copy of The Blaze, my latest novel. It's a mystery and thriller. I've been hearing a lot that a lot of the little co-maniacs out there think it's pretty good. You can run out and grab The Blaze today on whatever format you like to do your reading. Remember, if you have read it and you did enjoy it, please also go leave me a five-star review over at Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you like those. Emeo over there in Stockholm, a.k.a. Uh, podcast listener alfred larson if you like what you hear from him on the show and you want to check out more you can do it at soundcloud.com slash semio that's s-e-e-m-i-o semio three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one we see you brian ortega out here being good at fighting and shit spending that time away incrementally but steadily rounding out your skill set So that by the time you finally return, you surprise everybody with your shifty defense and patient but explosive offense. Pretty crafty, Brian. Pretty crafty. And in round number two, can Jared Cannonier's Stones of the Earth power him all the way to a middleweight title shot? He's got to get past Bobby Knuckles first. And in round number three, Habib versus Gaethje, as we said, also goes down this Saturday with a noon start time in the one true time zone. Y'all ready to see some lunchtime face smashing. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail comes to us from David Flores, who writes, how about that Jessica Andrage, huh? So Ben, Jessica Andrage, making her flyweight debut there at 125 pounds, gets the body shot TKO on Caitlin Chukagian just a few seconds before the end 
of round one on draw. She looked like a tiny five foot one inch tank out there, just bullying Chukagian around the cage, grabbing takedowns, landing shots, doing everything that uh, she needed to do to get the win uh, after you know moving up to flyweight, taking on taking on bigger competitors. Uh, I thought that uh, Jessica Andrade looked pretty impressive, but everybody in the flyweight division has the same problem. And I think you know the problem that I'm talking about. Is it Chevy Shanks, Valentina Shevchenko? That'd be the one. She's yep. up there. She's the, the, the queen pin, the ruler of this division, the person with the title, the one everybody is after. And so far, at least at that weight, impervious, impregnable. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, first of all, shouts out to David Flores for a very succinct question here. That's how you do it. That is how you – well, that or you make up a name and you have a long meandering question that then tells us you love us by the end. Uh, I was thinking about this afterwards, though, because Jessica Andrade, she goes to Flyweight. It's a new division to play around in. Looks really good here. A body shot TKO, especially – you know you get somebody good with a body shot where it makes them retreat, turn their back, and then do a little pirouette to turn around and face you because that's not something that they they want to do. Like they don't that's not good body language for them to be showing in the cage. And they're they're not they're not gonna do that voluntarily. That's something where she's just fighting her body's own impulse to crumple up and and lay there and stop moving. And she tries to fight it for a little bit, and then Andraj just comes in like a tornado and hits her with a couple more body shots. And that's pretty much it after that. So it is impressive to see that kind of performance right out the gates here. I'm going to ask the question that I'm sure Jessica Andrade is sick of hearing just from her MMA career in general. Is she too small to be a threat to somebody like Valentina Shevchenko? Yeah. Well, allegedly earlier in her career, she fought all the way up at 135. Like yeah. clearly she has the strength uh, to go out there and get things done at flyweight. The stature is a little bit of a concern, uh, especially when you are fighting a rangy and talented striker, the likes of Valentina Shevchenko, who has just pretty much been putting it on everybody since we even made up the women's flyweight division. Uh, but Jessica Andrade has that I might slam you on your head power, just like she did to Rose Namajunas. Uh, and so I probably wouldn't, put the house on it. I probably wouldn't whip out the deed to my car and throw that down on Jessica Andrade to beat Valentina Shevchenko. I don't know that there is a 125 pound professional women's fighter walking around in the UFC today that I would do that, but uh, I would watch it. And one of the primary topics of conversation that we've been uh, pursuing about the women's flyweight division recently is that Valentina Shevchenko just flat out needs people to fight because she's been so good she's been cleaning out the division so i don't know man i sort of welcome not only uh a, like the physical presence but but uh like a recognizable figure like jessica andrage who might be able to go to 125 and do some work so i would definitely be interested in seeing her get that title shot i would be somewhat surprised to see her win it and I am now just picturing the conversation you have to have with your wife if it turns out you lose the minivan betting it on Jessica Andrade against Valentina Shevchenko. Yeah, see, I can't That's do not, that. Yeah, because she's just going to be like, she's going to be like, well, you gambled away the minivan. Okay, I always knew this day would come, quite frankly. But then when you're like, well, I just thought that five foot one inch little tank Jessica Andrade had the number of one of the best 
female fighters in the UFC. And then she's just going to give you that look. Say, oh, Chad, Chad, come on. I mean, perhaps yeah. the moral of the story here is this is just what we've been reduced to at 125 pounds. Like we're. Yeah. And that we're too, grasping that, at straws. Hasn't that seemed to be the cloud kind of hanging over a lot of these would be contender fights lately in that division? Yeah. Cause it's just like whoever wins, congratulations. You earned yourself a kick in the face. It doesn't seem necessarily like the best of news, but then, you know, just Gondraj, she's experienced. She's been a UFC champion, you know, had a cup of coffee with the belt, as you like to say. So I don't, she does bring a little bit of that veteran savvy in there. And, you know, she got the dog in her. You put her in that fight. She's going to give you everything she got. It's just, it's hard for me to picture how she beats somebody like Valentina Shevchenko, but maybe, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves even talking about it. Maybe so. Uh, she did look pretty good in that in the debut, though. Let's do this one here next from our guy Vinny Gambini. We'll get all of our UFC Fight Night uh, 180 questions in a row here. Uh, Jonathan Martin just became one of my guys. How about used to? Oh, Jonathan Martinez. I'm sorry. Uh, just became one of my guys. How about used to? Of course, uh, Jonathan Martinez gets the win over Thomas Almeida. And the uh, main card curtain jerker, unanimous decision, 3027s across the board for Martinez, an impressive performance from him. And a guy who looks like he would rather have all of his teeth get pulled out without any anesthetic whatsoever than jump on the mic and, and call somebody out with your boy Daniel Cormier, who's doing everything he can out there yeah. to get Jonathan Martinez to to do that, telling him he's got to step outside himself uh, in order to do it. But uh Kind of a silent assassin type mode here for Jonathan Martinez. Uh, he has two wins in a row now. And as they said on the broadcast, that Andre Ewell fight back at UFC 247 was a split decision that a lot of people think uh, Jonathan Martinez should have won. If not for that loss, he would have five wins in a row uh, in this bantamweight division. Uh, I, You know, once again, I welcome all, any and all potential contenders slash stars slash guys I should know about at this uh, men's 135 pound division. So I think Jonathan Martinez fits right into that mold. As far as I'm concerned, there, it's interesting how sometimes you can be bad enough at interviews that it just, it becomes endearing. Yeah. <laughs> and especially with Daniel Cormier doing his, you know, kind of chop busting wrestler guy kind of thing where he's like, come on, man, come on, give us something. What, what do you want next? Come on, say something. You got to say something here. And he's just doing kind of like the Ricky Bobby in his first interview, like low talking and just will just kind of cut off in the middle of a sentence. Like he wants to be like, maybe if I just stand here still enough and stop talking, they'll leave me alone. Yeah. And it it becomes kind of adorable. So yeah, I'm into it. And yet, and yet they're telling these stories on the broadcast about Jonathan Martinez, fighting dudes in a backyard Kimbo slice style when he's just a teen. So uh, he doesn't like to talk about it. Maybe he's just more of a, you know, less caption, more action kind of a guy. He's he likes there. to be about it. Is that he what likes you're saying? to be about it. Exactly. I, I tell you what, I did not see him beating Thomas Almeida like that. So let's, I'm, I'm paying attention now. I'll say that. Next question this week comes to us from our guy, Darcy LeDrew, who writes, Connor and Dustin seemed poised to fight again, this time at welterweight. Does this not seem to be a cry for 165 pounds? 
uh, super fight division, as Nathan Donald Diaz would say. I'd rather have the bigger lightweights and smaller welterweights head to 165 to help ease the log jam in those divisions and help create badly needed stars for the promotion. Might just be me, but a fighter shouldn't need a 10-fight win streak like Tony Ferguson to get a title shot. That's brutal for Tony and brutal for anyone else after him. What's your take? Ben, we are, we're just going to start sounding like broken records here. But uh, yes, give us the 165 and give it to us right now. Yeah. Well, and especially we had hoped in the past that maybe Conor McGregor could be the guy to make it happen just because he can kind of jump in the UFC. We'll say how high, or at least historically that's been the case. And he's having a couple of these fights now, like with Donald Cerrone. And now it looks like at least we're talking like we're going to seriously do this one with Dustin Poirier, where he's basically saying, all right, how about a couple of us lightweights go out there and do it? And we just will agree not to cut weight. Yeah. We're both basically, we both know we can make 155, but why do we have to? Why, you know, especially since a fight like this, you're going to do big numbers with it if you're the UFC, regardless of what it's for. You know, you can just say these two guys are going to fight. People are going to want to watch that. You sell it on that basis and that, that should be enough. But like we've said, if you, one of the upsides to, to creating a 165 pound division would be you get to have a 165 pound belt. Yeah. UFC loves to put that gold on the poster, loves to have belts for people to fight over, especially love to have belts for Conor McGregor to fight over. So that would give you an option there to create that, have that do. I'm still not sold, though, that this particular fight is for reals. The no. whole thing, like, we talked about this a little bit on the live chat, you know, on the on the Power Hour, that everything about this, it started out as Conor McGregor just saying stuff and yeah. kind of tweaking the UFC's nose a little bit by being like, hey, Dustin, want to come do this sparring match? Nothing to do with the UFC. The UFC tries to get involved, say, we'll offer you the fight. And then Conor McGregor, when he fires back to say, I'll do the fight in Cowboy Stadium so I can have my my crowd there. And then Dana White says, well, we'll do the fight, but I don't know about with a crowd in Cowboy Stadium. And it seems to me like that is Conor McGregor offering up the UFC offers up a thing. He offers up a thing in response, but then tacks on another thing that he knows they probably will not say yes to at the yeah. current moment. Yeah. And that way, when they say no to that idea, he can be like, well, look, I didn't turn down the fight. I, they didn't. They said no to my idea. And I still don't buy that Conor McGregor really wants because not that it wouldn't be a great fight. Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier is a hell of a fight, especially yeah. right now. It's a crackerjack. I'd love to watch that fight. But everything we know about Conor McGregor, doesn't it kind of suggest that this is not the sort of thing he's going for right now? Like a rematch against a guy he already beat in like two minutes via knockout in the first round, the first time he fought him. Dustin Poirier is a better fighter now than he was then, a much bigger name than he was then. But Conor McGregor is not the kind of guy who seems like he likes to go backwards and especially like once he has a win over somebody and a good win that would be hard to top. Like he would say, all right, let's, I'm going to give you another chance. If he has a loss to somebody like Nate Diaz, then sure. He's going to want to run it back. But I, nothing about this feels like, like it has enough of that pizzazz that Conor McGregor likes that that's really what he would want as his first idea. Yeah. Oh, I mean, uh, Dustin Poirier has progressed to the point where this fight could do some numbers. Like I think it, it could be a, a lucrative fight for both guys. And uh, let's not forget that the biggest fight of Conor McGregor's career at one point was just people hashtag just saying stuff. That's how we got McGregor versus uh, Mayweather in the first place was, you know, idle talk turned out to to be a popular idea that then they were able to get, uh, you know, boxing promoters excited about able to get the UFC to to 
allow Conor McGregor to step outside his contract to do that. Uh, not that Poirier McGregor is a similar kind of thing, but we've seen McGregor kind of talk his way into these things before. I guess it, like it comes down to what his other options are. And I have to be honest with you, as we sit here today, I'm not totally sure what they are. It doesn't seem, it seems like Nurmagomedov, to his credit, sir, is sticking to his guns that he doesn't want to have anything to do with McGregor, uh, at least not right away. And so if that's not on the table, who knows what's going on with Nate Diaz? If that's not on the table, maybe Poirier isn't a bad option for McGregor. I don't know. But, but like, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's far from a reality at this point. I saw, I think it was Ariel Hawani tweeting earlier today that nothing is signed, but everybody's still talking and it seems like things are moving in the right direction. So we're just going to have to, uh, pay attention, I guess, stay tuned and see how that, that, uh, turns out i did want to read this uh stat stat of the day from our guy brandon boyd over on twitter so un unverified stat of the day okay. says taking into consideration all the lightweights and the welterweights there are 276 fighters that could compete in the 165 now maybe your bigger welterweights wouldn't want to get that far down maybe your smaller lightweights wouldn't want to move up but at the same time we all know this is where the glut of competition is this is where the talent bubble is at in mixed martial arts every time we talk about it just more and more signs signposts telling us that the uh that the 165 is a thing we should do man yeah yeah and as far as uh what conor mcgregor his other options are i think still though if he had his choice what he wants to do is box manny pacquiao even if he might be one of the only people who really, really wants to see that fight happen. Well, that's, that's what I would rather do too. So he and I are in agreement there. You, you would rather box Manny Pacquiao than fight Dustin Poirier. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> uh, let's do this one from our Sean Shotsley or Shotsel. How do you think you pronounce that name folks? Shotsel. I'm going to say Shotsel. Shotsel. This is a bit of a longer one, so strap yourself in. Okay. Uh, Chimaev has called out what seems to be the entire UFC roster of welterweights and middleweights. Most fighters did the smart thing and declined to respond to him as he is incredibly dangerous, but still unranked and largely unknown outside of shit-eating wild man circles. Chris Weidman took a slightly different approach and asked the UFC to book him against Chimaev. I am perplexed by this. Weidman just temporarily saved his career, at least when it comes to fighting at a high level, with a solid but largely uninspiring win against Akhmedov. He has some high-profile fights available as next options that are winnable, such as Rockhold, Hermanson, or Brunson, and he might even find himself in a top contender fight if he wins his next one. Yet he decides to pursue a fight against Chimaev, who his odds of beating are lower than all of the guys I just mentioned. Is there a method to Chrissy's madness here? Or is it just reckless decision-making, a tough guy inability to let Ch- a Chimaev call-out go unanswered? Please discourse. Uh, yeah, what is Chris Weidman up to here, Ben? Like, clearly, you know, we talked about it a little bit last week, that if you are the guy who stops the Kamzat Chimaev hype train, that's going to be good for you. That's going yeah. to get you back on the map. Uh, I don't necessarily know that Weidman, number one, is the guy to do it, or number two, that he would win that fight, or I guess number three, that he necessarily needs that to get back on the map. It seems to me, if you're Chris Weidman, the Sean Schatzel approach here of, of fighting a guy like uh, Luke Rockhold again, or uh, singing and dancing Jack Hermanson or Derek Brunson, you, you string together a win or two against guys at that level, we might be more inclined, to, we might be just as inclined, I guess I should say, to proclaim Chris Weidman back. And Chemayev, I, I agree, seems like a 
a big time risk for a guy who was, you know, former champ who whose profile is already notable in this division. Yeah. You know, I think about something I remember once from, I, it was some kind of like documentary series or something, some kind of like reality show thing. It seemed like, I can't remember exactly what it was. One of those early MMA ones. And I remember them being at AKA and Javier Mendez and Bob Cook were talking about Phil Baroni, who was training there at the time, the poet Philip Baroni to long time. I know, I know who that is. And he was getting ready for some fight in Japan. And I don't know if it was Bob Cook or Hav, one of those two, kind of explaining to the camera where Phil was at in his career, where basically they were like, he wants big money fights. Like he wants to make a lot of money in one night. He's not interested in a slow build to something. He wants it now. And those fights are kind of available for him, but they're hard fights. They're all against tough guys and people looking to use Phil Baroni's name and fighting style to benefit somebody else. And he, his unwillingness to take a more patient approach where he would fight easier fights for less money and maybe eventually work his way to something was seen as something that was getting in his way. I kind of think maybe a similar thing is going on with Chris Weidman, maybe not necessarily just financially, but Chris Weidman wants to be back in the picture. You know, he wants to, to be, cut the line in other words. Right. Well, and he wants to like, I think part of it is that, Chemayev has all this hype around him right now. He has a name. People are paying attention to the guy. His next fight, whoever it's against, we're told it's going to be a main event. And people are going to be paying attention to it. I think Weidman, on one hand, looks at the matchup-wise and thinks like, okay, here's a guy who's going to go out there or maybe try to wrestle me. And I feel like matchup-wise, I, I do better against this guy than I do against some of the other people. Plus, maybe he looks at him and goes, the guy is mostly hype. He hasn't really beat anybody yet the first person to pop that bubble is going to get some benefit from him. The second person won't get nearly as much benefit. I want to be first in line there. Plus, honestly, uh, these ideas that uh, Sean Schatzel throws out here, Rockhold, Hermanson, and Brunson, I don't know if I love Chris Weidman's chances against any of those guys right now. Maybe Hermanson. I don't love his chances against Brunson or Rockhold right now, just based on what we saw in Ed Weidman's last fight. Like I understand the thinking that, hey, you just kind of – found your footing. You just stopped the skid. Maybe don't go after take, or maybe don't take the bait for a tough young guy like Chmaev, who I think probably does beat Weidman right now. But I think Chris Weidman, he wants to be uh, back in there as a known guy and a real player in that division right now, not, you know, two or three fights from now. He wants to be there now. And he sees this as the path there. Is it a good idea? I don't know. Uh, but I, I think that's probably the way his mind is working right now. Speaking of Daniel Cormier trying to old man wrestler guy bust everybody's chops. Did you see this video that was floating around online this week of uh, Cormier and Shemaev? Yes. Doing some play fighting over there at the host hotel on fight Island. It made me wonder about life in the host hotel to be like, especially for the people who work there. Because do they just look over every once in a while and be like, oh, there's a couple of uh, professional fighters fighting for underhooks in the lobby over there. Um, just, yeah, re- just real close to what appeared to be a glass door. Mm-hmm. And so. like standing right uh, next to the coffee table, which you could see somebody going through. Let's all just look the other way. Pretend we don't see it because this is just probably what you sign up for when the UFC takes over uh, coming to Yaz Island for like a, a month long residency or whatever. Right. Plus, it seems like once you get inside the bubble, once you get your COVID test passed, might as well. 
Yeah. Go ahead. Grapple with each other right here in the lobby. Who cares? Get in each other's space, lay hands on one another, and uh, get a little bit of that that human touch we've been missing, Chad. (laughs) Uh, All right. Let's do this one for our last one from John the Yank Harrington. So a death in the West shout out there for those of you who've been listening to the show. Uh, He writes, why do so many fighters feel the need to immediately console their dazed opponents? Jimmy Crute sat down with Bacoskis like they were taking a Lithuanian, taking in a Lithuanian some sunset while the poor guy was trying to figure out if the fight was even over. Fighters should clear out and allow the ref medical staff to do their work. Now this, this, this was a little bit of a quick one here. Jimmy Crute obviously uh, knocks out Modestus Bacoskis two minutes into the first round of their light heavyweight fight on the main card of UFC fight night 180 this past weekend. And then pretty much immediately after the stoppage sits down with the guy next to the cage and throws his arm around him. Uh, and the, Her- the Yank Harrington's description here of sitting down like they were taking in a Lithuanian sunset is about is perfect. It, I can't think of a better way to describe it than that. Uh, is that a phrase? A li- taking in a Lithuanian sunset? Is that a thing? Uh, is If he coined it, more power to him, man. Okay. Are the sunsets particularly spectacular in Lithuania? I have, I, you're asking the wrong dude. I don't know. No. Look into it, Chad. I need you to get to the bottom of it. I'll do some research. But, uh, you know, normally everybody is just out here trying to uh, to show good sportsmanship and whatnot. Although I agree, when you sit down with a guy quite that that quickly after he gets knocked out, there is a part of me that's like, what's going on here? Is is Jimmy Crute trying to – is it really a – is it really a a full-hearted good faith – effort to wish your opponent well or is it more of like a hey man remember when i just knocked you out a couple seconds ago that was awesome yeah i don't think it's that necessarily like i'm not gonna say that it is an abundance of concern either but i i try not to judge people too harshly for anything they do right in that immediate aftermath because i can imagine there's a lot of stuff going through your mind right now a lot of a lot of emotions running through the body because that moment when the referee steps in and stops it and you go, okay, it's over. You did it. And I'm sure there's a lot of relief, all that, that comes flooding in and people do weird stuff in those moments. As long as that weird stuff doesn't harm anybody, you know, I'm inclined to give you a little bit of a pass on it, but we have seen like a lot of people do that where uh, they immediately want to like check on their opponent or, or basically they immediately want to be cool with them. Like, Hey, you know, great fight. Sorry. You know, like, and help him up or that kind of stuff. And it's true. Like John, the Yank Harrington makes a good point that like by now, everybody should have learned the medical staff. They want to get in there and check on the guy. The ref wants to make sure the guy is okay. They don't want you in there getting in the way. Even if you're trying to offer positive vibes, even if you're trying to do a thing where you choke the guy out and you're trying to lift his legs for him to help him, they would rather you just get out of there and go celebrate with your team over in your corner. And yet I kind of understand how in that moment, maybe that's Jimmy Crute seemed to kind of realize it. Like he, he sat down, the guy put his arm around him, stayed there very briefly. And then was like, okay, I I should get out of here. Yeah. Uh, Also uh, a a good moment to remember the, the, what the fuck test as uh, Bukowskis seemed like he wanted to protest the stopping, the stoppage there for, for at least a, a second or two, but was doing it from a seated position. Was yeah. not able to. An important thing to note about the WDF rule: you got to be able to get up 
and look the referee in the eye without stumbling around and ask, what the fuck, ref? Right. Can't do it from a seated position. If you have to sit there motionless and look up to him with your back against the fence, kind of makes the point that it was the right stoppage. Who was the fighter that uh, elevated his opponent's legs? I think that was Maquan Americani a couple fights ago. Yeah. See, but it's just trying to be nice. Just trying to help out. Here's a follow-up to your question, Ben. Uh, Modestus Bukoskis is fighting out of Denham, Buckinghamshire, England, which sounds like a real place that I totally believe in. Uh, But he was born in Klaipeda, Lithuania. Okay. Checking out a Lithuanian sunset. Lithuanian sunset. Appears to be a reference to the birthplace of Modestus Bukowskis. Well, now I feel like I need to, before I die, make it over there and see a Lithuanian sunset. I mean, you could do a lot worse. In I'm going to use the CME money to go do it. This is all, all right. the excuse I need. I'm expensive. out of my hair for a while. Okay. Uh, that'll do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, comment, concern you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, on Friday's Power Hour, we talked a lot about A, what we wanted to see from Brian Ortega, and B, what things we would absolutely not want to see from Brian Ortega as he returned to the cage after a substantial layoff, as well as his first career loss to Max Holloway at UFC 231, stepping back in here after almost two years away to fight Chan Sung Jung, the Korean zombie, in the main event of this fight night event on Saturday night from the Flash Forum over there on the Fight Atoll. Neither of us, to my recollection, brought up the idea that Brian Ortega could enter this fight looking like a totally new human being, but that is sort of what happened here, as not only right before the fight, he shaved off his flowing locks, so he got in there uh, just looking like a different person, and also... Uh, appears to have spent the time off steadily improving the game and comes out against the Korean zombie as a patient technical boxer, also prone to explosions of incredible violence and salts away the lopsided 50-45 victory here. Tell me, sir, how impressed were you by this performance from Brian Ortega on any number of fronts? I thought it was super impressive just from start to finish. That's a great performance by him. And especially, as you said, to to spend that time away, really improving, to show up with no real signs of any sort of rust at all, even after all that time not competing. And to look like so much more of a complete fighter. Yeah. Especially like in the stand, because he... He had such a great approach where he he realized like okay especially when I'm standing in the southpaw stance he's having a hard time reaching me which making making the zombie kind of dive in there after you to reach you thwarting that initial attempt and then stinging him with something before he can get out of there again and that really puts the guy in a tough spot especially because when the zombie did consent to stand at a little bit of distance from him that that lead hand that right hand jab that, that Ortega could throw out at him was so fast that it was just stinging him like just popping his head back kind of whenever he felt like it whenever uh Chan Sung Yung made the mistake of, of 
standing there in that range without being too far out or too close in. And so you lead the guy with so few options, so few paths to victory and just like such a smart fight all the way around. But then, as you said, can still throw in one of those old like Brian Ortega things like I might throw a spinning elbow at you, but I'll know exactly when to do it. Perfectly timed, catches him walking right into it and uh, floors him. Also, it's worth noting that the zombie said that kind of after that, after round two, he did not really have much memory of what happened in that fight. So he got his bell rung pretty. It looked like he might have been being close to being finished right there. And it seemed like maybe he was not too with it after that point. Yeah. It really made uh, Brian Ortega seem like an incredible athlete, which uh, I guess, you know, to be a fighter at his high level, maybe that goes without saying. But previous to this, obviously, he had been a guy with incredible jujitsu skills. Uh, and was not, you know, was a serviceable striker. We we had seen him in the past do impressive things on his feet, but you, you, maybe we had a tendency to think of Brian Ortega as a bit, a bit more of like a pure submission jujitsu guy. Uh, and now to show up at this stage in his career, suddenly looking like the fully realized version of what the MMA fighter Brian Ortega can be is unbelievably impressive, especially to have done it in the wake of that loss to Max Holloway to have done it, you know, while he was having a couple of surgeries, also trying to get his health in order, trying to heal up uh, and to have done it, you know, with a change of scenery around a new team. We talked on Friday a little bit about how it seemed somewhat cold blooded for Brian Ortega in the wake of that first loss to, to Max Holloway to say that on the elevator on his way to the hospital is when he decided he was going to clean house and change up his team. But in retrospect, it appears to have been absolutely the right move And like, you can't do that kind of stuff. Like this is, we just talked about also last week about how I was saying in MMA, sometimes we focus too much on the triumph of the human spirit. And we think that, oh, if this guy just trained his takedown defense or just trained his striking or just trained, uh, you know, whatever for six months, like he would be a whole new guy and he could like right all the wrongs and suddenly be the champion. And, and in a lot of instances, that's just pie in the sky talk because most people can't do it. But for Brian Ortega to make these strides, it, at this point in his career and it come into at least this fight looking like a completely changed fighter and like a completely, as I said, fully re- realized version of himself is unbelievably impressive. And the kind of thing that like, not, not just would be hard for anybody, but would be hard for a lot of professional athletes to change themselves to that degree. So kudos to Brian Ortega uh, for being that guy and being able yeah. to do that. Because like I said, yeah. I can't say enough about it. Yeah. Now we, I almost forgot about your attack on the human spirit. Yeah. And then Brian Ortega, it would be Ortega too, to go out here and prove me wrong. Well, we talked about it a little bit about, Hey, when you decide to change everything, are you, how are you sure that you're changing the right things? But having him come back and, and talk about like, Hey, it's not like I took two years off and just relaxed and was on the couch doing nothing. Like I was really working on improving. And a thing that we've heard from fighters before, which is that it's hard to really focus on improving when you have a really busy fight schedule, because you're always in camp. If you get out of one, you, you recover from the last fight camp and then you have to get into another one for the next fight because you got to fight three months later. You're really just focusing at that point on sharpening your existing skills, getting in shape, getting your weight down, stuff like that. There's not a lot of time to play around with adding new stuff to the toolbox. And so maybe two years off to work on that, to get a new team around him. Maybe that's the best thing that could happen to him. However, I will say this. It puts him in a tricky spot when you take two years off after a failed title bid in which you took a kind of a hellacious beating. 
You come back, you win one fight, look outstanding doing it, beat a, a serious guy in the division and look great. And they say, congratulations, kid, you earned yourself another title shot. You're going right back into that other title shot because it's if you lose that one, then you've got two failed title shots against two different champions. And you're still, you know, by that point, probably around 30 years old for Brian Ortega. And it kind of puts a little bit of a roadblock where it's hard to get that third title shot. And it, it takes all this stuff that he's feeling pretty good about right now, retooling the whole team and the, the approach and everything, and puts it immediately to a big test yeah. to say right now, go fight Alexander Volkanovsky because Volkanovsky is going to be a tough out for anybody. Yeah, and especially because he will no longer have the element of surprise. Like, it just seemed okay, like, yeah. well, it looked like Chan Sung Jung was surprised at how this yeah. went, like, uh, as as the rest of us were as well. This just it looked like it was not the fight that he prepared for and that he right. was not really able to get out of first gear throughout this 25 minutes that he spent with Brian Ortega because of that and also because of the things that, that Ortega was doing. And, like, you know, if this wasn't just kind of like a one-off, fluke incredible showing by brian ortega but if he truly was able to go out and supplement his striking game to the to the point that like he is now both a complete kickboxer and oh yeah also has insane brazilian jiu-jitsu skills that makes him a very difficult puzzle to figure out so on the night of the fight you could tell uh the korean zombie just didn't really know what to do he couldn't really uh change it up and like to his credit it seemed like Chan Sung Jung came into this thing with a slightly more patient game plan as well. And he was like, oh, I'm not going to be the Korean zombie of old. I'm going to have a more technical fight. I'm probably the better striker than this dude. So that'll work out in my favor. And then this happens, which is, yeah. again, I think just totally surprised him. If he if Ortega goes out there against Alexander Volkanovsky in his next fight, Volkanovsky already has five rounds worth of tape to study and maybe True. try to figure out some of the things that that the Korean zombie could not figure out in real time. That said, at this point, Brian Ortega is complete enough that I will absolutely not argue with that fight, that I will yeah, 100% no. watch that. Me too. I mean, and you're right that afterwards, the stuff he was saying on social media, where the zombie was saying that he was ashamed of himself, was that he his game plan was to draw Ortega more to him, to bring him in and, and look to counter and things like that, which is what we've seen him doing successfully in some of those more recent fights, like Hinato Moicano and stuff. Uh, and... You're right that it seemed like he wasn't sure how to adjust to how the fight started to go. And I would say that what we've seen from Volkanovsky, especially in that last fight against Max Holloway, one thing that he seems like he does particularly well is adjust on the fly. So that should be interesting. Well, you're also going to have some mad science type shit with the city kickboxing guys getting Volkanovsky ready for that. So uh, uh, one of the things I wanted to mention before we move on about Brian Ortega is him doing this – at least partially including some real old school UFC dogs out there. Uh, Tiki Goshen and Paul Herrera being in his corner. Like well, Tiki's his manager, right? Yeah. And then one of his coaches, probably I would assume wrestling coach, Paul Herrera, who is, is best known as the dude that uh, big daddy Goodridge knocked out in the crucifix position with all those elbows. But uh, you know, is a, is a fine grappler in his own right. But uh, that just makes me happy. Makes me happy to see a guy have a, a terrific, uh, fully evolved performance and look over in the corner and just have a couple salty old UFC pioneers out here uh, wow. in the corner with him. I think we all remember the Paul Herrera scene from Foxcatcher where we watched them watch him in yeah. that UFC fight. I don't know. Hey, if you say Tiki's your manager and he's doing a great job, uh, 
I'll, I'll take your word for it, I guess. <laughs> well, he's got a more professional look these days, at least. Doesn't have the, the blonde streaks in his goatee anymore. Okay. Or was it shaved? Was his goatee shaved back in there? Remember, he used to have those like those lines in his goatee. He was doing some stuff with the goatee, yeah. one way or another. He definitely had yeah. a look going. All right, let's go ahead and do. Are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then we'll uh, we'll move on to round number two. Uh, we had talked about this before we started recording, Ben, and the uh, the impetus to this has come fallen into some amount of question here. But I wanted to point out James Krause, who went out and got his. Uh, his win over the weekend in a short notice fight at this fight night event against Claudio Silva shows up at the, uh, at the post fight press conference. And he's doing the James Krause stuff, the stuff that we like about James Krause. He's a, uh, he's, he's self-aware. He's smart. He's articulate. He's honest. He's not going to uh, lie to you about anything. Seemingly kind of an open book, James Krause, but he has this to say about recent, uh, Highlight reel knockout overnight sensation Joaquin Buckley. This from the uh, story story from Mike Bone and uh, and John Morgan. Uh, that dude's a clown, man. Krause told reporters, "Listen, this dude. People just know him from his viral video for, for his viral knockout. It was a beautiful knockout. I'm not going to rag on that. The dude's a fucking shitbox." He's from my neck of the woods. All he does is sit on social media and talk shit all day. He called me to come train and I told him to get fucked. I don't want that type of culture in my gym. I don't need that type of culture. Uh, he took offense to it and it is what it, what it is. He can get it too. I'll go back up to middleweight and whoop his ass. I don't give a fuck. Normally I need 24 hours notice to go up to middleweight. He can get it though. We can figure this out. No problem. I know he's got a fight set, but I'll go back up to middleweight for that. No problem. Easy work. So I guess this week I'm saying, are you fucking kidding me? Now Joaquin Buckley sees the uh, the negative side effect to the overnight highlight reel sensation. But you were saying you had heard on the internets that perhaps James Krause mistakenly saw a Joaquin Buckley uh, impersonator or like a, a troll account, uh, a yeah, social media know. account that did not truly belong to Joaquin Buckley. I don't, we know. don't know. I, we don't know at this point. It's a mystery. I haven't looked into that one yet, but I saw some people talking about that. Maybe there was some possibility that he was talking to somebody on the internet who wasn't the actual walkie. I, I don't know. But uh, I, wow, a shit box though. Yeah. You fucking kidding me? Shit box. Fucking kidding me? Uh, Chad, this week, my, are you fucking kidding me? We talked about a little bit on the power hour, but over there last week in Bellator, some Thursday night Bellator action as yeah. may be a bit of the norm going forward on CBS sports network. Uh, Chris Cyborg showed up and, uh, you know, kind of rammed through Arlene B- Anger Fist to Blenco. Anger Fist. But, yeah, I know. You love that one. Um, that one, though, ends in submission after mm-hmm. Cyborg has just beaten her up, gets the, the rear naked choke on, and gets the submission victory. You know, a not unthinkable outcome at all for Chris Cyborg, knowing what we know about her. And then you go and you look at her record, Chad. Chris Cyborg has 23 professional wins in mixed martial arts, 18 by knockout, four by decision, and as of now, exactly one by submission. Are you fucking kidding me? Chris Cyborg's been doing it this long? That's the first submission victory? She's She's been a pro fighter for 15 goddamn years, Chad. Yeah. She's fought pretty much everybody there is to fight who can even get close to 145 pounds. I mean, I, I know she's not out here 
De La Hiva sweeping people and looking for Eminari rolls into the heel hook and stuff. But I guess I just would have thought that somewhere by now, she would have hit somebody really hard until they fell down and turned their back to stop getting hit. And she would have latched on a choke or something like that by now. I just, I figured it would have happened. I'm kind of having my mind blown by realizing that she made it this far without ever winning a fight by submission. Fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. And she's Brazilian. For the love of God. Fucking kidding me. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back. Round number two. Chad, I mentioned earlier, my UFC 254 hype levels pretty goddamn high already. Sitting here Monday of fight week, already getting pretty excited. Now, I know we're all going to get pretty hyped talking about Khabib and Justin Gaethje. That's obviously the big fight we're all looking forward to. But I don't want us to overlook what's going on in the co-main event. So we might as well talk about it here on the co-main event podcast. Our dude, Robert Whitaker, Bobby goddamn Knuckles. It's going to go in there against Jared Cannonier right now is looking at a situation where if he wins, he's probably got the next middleweight title shot against Israel Adesanya. Robert Whitaker, however, he's looking to prove that he is still a championship caliber guy in this division. He's not just somebody you beat to make your case for a title shot. He's going in here. This one, if you look at the odds, is probably about the closest fight that you have, the most competitive and hardest to call fight that you have on this fight card. What say you, Chad? What do you make of what's going on here between Bobby Knuckles and Jared Kennedy? Is this just a thing where you see stones of the earth coming in here, making his claim to the title shot? Or can Robert Whitaker do something here that make people step back and reevaluate him? Well, obviously, anytime you have a number one contender fight, it's a big deal for both guys. But I kind of feel like this one comes along at a particularly fraught crossroads for both Jared Kennedy and uh, Robert Whitaker, because you got on one side, Cannoneer, who now has trekked down across two uh, full weight classes to get to middleweight, started out as kind of like a uh, uh, a frumpy heavyweight up oh, there wow. okay. fighting in Alaska. I believe he fought at Alaska Fighting Championships, a broadcast that you and I have enjoyed from time to time over on the rewatch uh, live watch shows that we do for the Patreon. And then he became a light heavyweight to to like some success in the UFC and now is undefeated through three fights at middleweight. And so for Cannoneer, powered by Stones of the Earth, BT dubs, uh, we have this situation where we're trying to get a bead on exactly how good this dude is going to be at 185 pounds. And so far he looks like the power translates. So far he looks like a good athlete. He obviously uh looks great getting off the bus at 185 pounds. And uh he just just seems like a dangerous guy at 185 pounds. But on the other side of the cage, you got Bobby Knuckles, Robert Whitaker, the former champion, a guy who in in the wake of his loss to Israel Adesanya has talked a lot about how the grind of not only that run to the title, but also then his title reign, where not only was he fighting dudes like Yoel Romero more than once, but he was also going through a bunch of kind of strange health problems kind of on and off. And he has talked in the wake of that sort of about how he wasn't he was burned out. He wasn't liking the job. He wasn't excited about training. He was in his own words, dragging his feet from one thing to another. 
And then the, that losing the title was a little bit of a wake-up call. Now to, to, to hear him tell it, he's re-energized. He gets this win over Darren Till. But the road back to another fight with Israel Adesanya could be long and somewhat treacherous considering how that one went. So you've got this fight now where Jared Cannonier gets his his biggest test at 185 pounds. And if he passes this one, you might as well give him a title shot because that will be super impressive, especially uh, if he does you know, some, some manner of highlight stoppage to Robert Whitaker. And if Whitaker wins, then I think we can, we can feel good about saying Bobby Knuckles is back and that he's, he's maybe, uh, if not the next guy up for Israel Adesanya on the short list. So it's a super interesting matchup as far as I'm concerned, just to see these two guys go out there and, and both get this kind of test at this very interesting stage in both of their careers. Yeah. Well, it seems to me like Jared Kennedy are probably just has to win. If he wins a decision over Robert Whitaker, I think he's probably up next, as long as it's you know, not a controversial decision where everybody's going to act like he lost. Uh, if Bobby Knuckles wins, I think he has to do something spectacular in order to get people to even think about him and Israel Adesanya again so soon after the first one. It was only just about a year ago that they fought the first time. He got finished. It's a pretty decisive result. But also maybe they run into a situation where we don't quite know what to do with Israel Adesanya. If we don't have a ton of other contenders at middleweight, maybe Robert Whitaker can win this fight and just get back in there due to a lack of other ideas. I look, though, at like Jared Cannonier, especially the stuff he's been doing recently, like his last three wins, right? right. After he got, he got knocked out by Dominic Reyes, and that was his last light heavyweight fight. Then he comes back, TKO win over David Branch, TKO on that leg kick injury kind of over Anderson Silva, but... I don't want to make that one sound like you didn't really win it because he was winning that fight before he leg kicked Anderson Silva and Anderson went down with an injured leg. And then the TKO win over singing and dancing Jack Hermanson. So that's a pretty good run here. If he beats Robert Whitaker, will you consider that the the biggest win of his career? Uh, well, the certainly the biggest thing he's done at middleweight, and like I'd have to hear. Let me look at the guy's actual career. Well, uh, he's got eye on Kudalaba at, yeah. at light heavyweight, and that's about the biggest one that uh, he got that surprise one, like maybe against Cyril Asker. But uh, yeah, uh, no, yeah. It's, it's 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 without question the biggest win of his career. Now that I'm actually looking at the list of opponents, uh, not only because it's a former champion, but also gets him into uh, into a potential title shot against Israel Adesanya, but also because you mentioned like. Three straight TKOs, David Branch, Anderson Silva, Jack Hermanson. Like, that's impressive. But, like, let's be honest, Robert Whitaker would be the cherry on top of the Sunday there. Robert Whitaker would be the, the, the exclamation point at the end of the sentence. So, yeah, for Jared Cannonier, this is one where he's, I think he's got to show up and, uh, and prove that, that he can be the number one contender. So that's, I mean, that's, that's as big as it gets short of an actual fight for the gold. So this, in terms of a co-main event, this is a good fight, man. This is one I'm definitely yeah. looking forward to. Yeah, I'm really. I, I think, especially in terms of just like sheer competitiveness, this one might be the best fight on the card. Yeah. Uh, have you seen? Did you watch the uh, countdown show at all? No. Robert Whitaker ha- appears to have a basketball hoop in both of the gyms where he trains, and not okay. like a regulation basketball hoop, but basically just like a basketball hoop bolted to the wall, like in both right. in both places, and. Uh, it, for the the grappling gym, it appears that they use it as a, some manner of warm up thing. Like they they throw the basketball around, they shoot baskets, some kind of like a hybrid basketball game played out on the jujitsu mats. But I just didn't know, man. Robert Whitaker is super into weird hybrid, not basketball basketball. 
Kind of reminds me of back when we found out that at Matt Hughes's gym there for a while, one of the, I don't know if they were using it as a warm up or conditioning, but they played dodgeball. See, I, I am all into MMA fighters getting some manner of training or just working up a sweat doing weird versions of other sports. Do we have odds on this? What's the, who's favored yeah. to win this? Who's, who's it is very to tight right now. The odds I'm looking at show, uh, Jared Cannonier. Well, I mean, you can kind of find it either way. I've got one where Jared Cannonier is minus 115 and Robert Whitaker is minus 105, making Cannonier very slight favorite. But then there's another one where you get Jan and Can- Jared Cannonier at minus 110 and Robert Whitaker at minus 120. So, yeah. so it's a push. Kind of the, the, yeah, and, and at least some bookmakers, I'm looking at bestfightodds.com, which is kind of my go-to because it gives you a look across a bunch of different online bookies. Uh, there's a couple that have Robert Whitaker as plus 100. Mm. So if you had okay. 20 bucks, you never wanted to see again. You know what I'm saying? Don't bet the van, though, Chad. No, this is not the one to bet the van on. I'm not going to win. I'm not going to bet the van. What's, what's your heart telling you? What's your heart and your mind brain telling you headed into this fight? You know my heart will not let me pick against Bobby Knuckles. Yeah. You know that. That's true. That's true. I do know that. That's just not even a thought for me. Well. And if you're, if you're going to join me on the live watch party, you're going to see that Ben Folks is probably going to be emotionally invested in what happens to Bobby Knuckles here, for better or for worse. Well, and that at that point, you'll be three sheets to the wind. So Yeah. At that uh, point, if I still have a shirt on by then, good chance that it gets ripped off either in celebration or anger. Wow. Okay, well now we got to see this. Now this this UFC 254 uh, Patreon watch party just went to must see TV status. So there you go. That's where we're at. That is going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back. For round number three. Ben, this is the one we've been waiting for. The interim champ, Justin Gaethje, against the straight-up, ordinary, regular old champ, Habib Nurmagomedov at lightweight, the most competitive division in the UFC, the main event of UFC 254 over there in Abu Dhabi. I'm not going to mince words, man. I'm just going to ask you straight out the gate. Can Justin Gaethje do the impossible and walk out of this thing as the UFC's undisputed 155 pound champion. Well, I can't rule it out, you know, just because we know Justin Gaethje, he is a good fighter, hits hard, and he will fight like hell until you put him away. We also know that Khabib has been able to go out there and do a specific set of things to high level fighters who know that it's coming. Yeah. To me, Everything rests on the questions, can Justin Gaethje stay off the fence and keep this in open space in the middle of the cage? If he can do that, if he can make sure the fight is contested there, then I like his chances a lot. He didn't have to stop every takedown. I think if you go in there against Khabib, you need to tell yourself that if I don't do a Jorge Masvidal and sprint over there and knock him out with a flying knee in the opening seconds, I'm probably going to get taken down at some point. Yeah, But you also know that as long as I can avoid getting caught in that that very specific Khabib spin cycle up against the fence 
where he takes you down. He gets you to turn. He's trying to trap one of your arms and uh, trying to immobilize your legs and gets you to where you just get so desperate to get up or to get away that you make a mistake and he jumps on you. You're probably going to have some opportunities to show that you can get up from his takedowns. Like, cause yeah. he's not really the guy who takes you down once and submits you right away or just uh, gets a TKO ground and pound in the first round. As soon as he gets one takedown, he's, he's the guy who's going to like be setting records for number of takedowns in a fight. Cause he just keeps bringing you back down there, but he can do it with f- for five rounds. No problem. And most of his opponents cannot do it for five rounds. And so if you're just engaged, you, you've got to stay off that fence, get him out there in space. And if you can get him there, then, then you have a chance to land that punch. But the, the problem people get into is it's one thing to go in there and know like, Hey, I, this guy's hittable. Sometimes he doesn't always react well when he gets hit. If I can just lay a glove on him, maybe it'll open things up for me, but then it's hard to do that when you're also worried about being taken down all the time. Yeah. And you know, it would be foolhardy to underestimate Justin Gaethje, especially considering what we just saw from him against Tony Ferguson in his most recent fight, uh, the fight that he won to become the interim lightweight champion. And yet if, if Habib's most recent fight against uh, Dustin Poirier proved anything, it was exactly how difficult it is to work this game plan to work what you would assume would have to be Justin Gaethje's game plan. If he's going to, if he's going to have any success here Uh, and Dustin Poirier, as good as he is and as big a role as he had been on heading into the Habib fight was just flatly unable to keep Habib off him. And the big takeaway in my mind from that, from that fight was just how difficult it is to work that kind of a game plan in a long-term fight against Habib Nurmagomedov because we saw against Poirier, essentially if you put one foot behind the black interior octagon line and in the middle of the canvas out there in the UFC cage, he's getting you up against that fence and then he's doing Habib stuff to get you down. Now, Gaethje has a, has a wrestling background. Maybe he has uh, you know, a greater chance to do it than, than Poirier did. Gaethje also has the one punch knockout power. He has the aggressiveness. We know he's going to come in, in in terrific shape because he always does. And I think if you're right, that if he can keep it on the feet, he's going to be a real alive dog here. But we also haven't seen anybody be able to do that yet against Habib yeah. Nurmagomedov. Now, not to stray too far on the other side and not, not to work too hard to build a narrative here, but like this will be Habib's first fight since his father died. And obviously that relationship loomed incredibly large in his life. We don't know how that affected his mental game. We don't know how it affected his preparation because uh, his dad was was one of his primary coaches from a very, very young age. We also don't know how it's going to affect his preparation to have not uh, spent any time at AKA, correct? He's been overseas for the entire lead up to this Gaethje fight. So a little bit of a different scenario playing out in numerous ways for Habib Nurmagomedov. Now the thing Habib does is a thing that he's been doing his entire life. So uh, if he went out there and didn't miss a beat and did everything that we are used to seeing him do to Justin Gaethje and got this fight in supremely Habib Nurmagomedov fashion, I would not be surprised, but I also don't think you can totally discount that he is coming to this fight from a slightly different psychological place and maybe not the most comfortable psychological place, even for a guy who has been undefeated up to this point in his career. Yeah, I mean, that whole thing is a, a weird X factor, right? Because especially, you know, we saw him a couple of weeks ago getting annoyed at reporters who kept asking about like, you know, 
are you sad that your dad died basically? And he's like, oh, yes, of course. Like, wouldn't you be sad? Like it's a huge loss in my life and all that. But then also you see it in some of the pre-fight material where like BT sport made this cool, like animation thing about like his father's influence on his life and his work as a pro fighter and his training and everything. And then him having to go forward in this fight without his father in his corner. And it's kind of weird because it's a little bit of a fine line to walk there when, because if you're going to talk about what's going on in this fight and what's going on with Khabib, how we got here and where everybody is and their own paths uh, as they intersect here, you kind of have to talk about that, right? Because as you said, like a first fight without his father uh, after his father being like his main coach, like for his entire life. And so that's a big deal. And it's, it would be dishonest to just ignore it and pretend like it's not there. It's also sometimes, it's a little bit icky when it starts to seem like, wait a minute, are we using this dude's dad's death as like a, a hype point in a pre-fight hype video to help us sell pay-per-views um, just because it creates like a good narrative and a good story that people latch on to. So I don't, you can kind of argue both ways there, but it, it, you're right that it is. It's a weird place to find him right now, especially because when you hear Khabib talk, it feels like he is getting close to feeling like he's kind of done what he needs to do. Like he, he's, he seems focused on this Justin Gaethje fight, but then afterwards he's talking about, I don't know. I don't know what I'll do after that. Like it'll have to be something interesting. Um, he, he definitely seems to feel like he's sort of made it to the mountaintop and is not sure exactly what comes next after that. Um, but then Justin Gaethje goes out like that's a, he's a tough guy to fight in this situation because you know that whatever, as long as he is capable of standing upright and pulling breath into his lungs, that guy's going to be throwing to take your head off. Yeah, I, it, it's a valid question whether he can whether he'll still have that same pop after he's been taken down and had Habib wearing on him for two or three rounds. I mean, that's always a, a tough thing. Like if you get into playing Habib's game, even if you find yourself with a good chance standing out in the middle of space uh, in the third round, do you still have that? that explosiveness that you'd need to launch a knockout shot or are your arms just too heavy and weary at that point to, to make use of it. But Justin Gaethje, you know, is like, he's not the guy who fights like he's worried about the things that might happen. That's been his thing for better and worse, pretty much his whole career. So if, if there's a guy who has a chance to go out there and not get too worried about the takedown and not get too in his own head about uh, trying to stay away from all the Khabib stuff and just go and do his thing, Gaethje might be that guy. Yeah, if I were gainfully employed still at an MMA shop where I was uh, required to make fight picks, I would probably end up being wrong, but I would think about taking a flyer on Justin Gaethje here. And if you, it would have to be $20 you absolutely never wanted to see again, because you probably won't. But just those factors, like Habib coming into this, fight with a different set of preparations in the first fight back since he lost his dad talking about how, you know, he's not sure what he's going to do after this, but it's going to have to be something interesting. Like there's been some George St. Pierre talk. I don't know if that's a thing that could actually occur, but uh, all of this kind of like swirling around like uh, intangible stuff coupled with Justin Gaethje being a division one wrestler, having the, the background at Northern Colorado where he was a pretty good wrestler. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, the first guy that Habib has fought in a while 
with that kind of skill set. I know he he fought Kamal Shalaras in his UFC debut years ago, and Kamal Shalaras is a really, really high-level wrestler. But maybe short of like Rafael Dos Anjos, I don't know that he's fought a guy who like has the defensive wrestling skills that maybe Justin Gaethje will bring to the table. And Justin Gaethje, like you said, is a guy that he can potentially stop you. And we've seen Habib get hurt with punches before. And yeah. I don't know that it can happen. Obviously, it hasn't happened up to this point. You, you're kind of a, a jerk to bet against Habib at any point because you're probably just going to lose your money. But this is an interesting matchup, I think, both from just a physical perspective and all of the things that have been going on around this fight. I'm very interested to see what happens. If Habib just comes out here and cleans Justin Gaethje's clock the same way he's beat everybody else, that's sort of like a testament to greatness type performance. And uh, I can't wait to see what happens Saturday afternoon. If you had that 20 bucks you never wanted to see again, just going to point out that you could get about three to one odds on Justin Gaethje right now. See, there you go. Then you got 60 bucks back, right? Chad, if you were to bet the van, you could get three vans in return. Man, let me call my wife real quick. (laughs) Baby, I got a feeling. (laughs) You got to trust me. Let's do just saying stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your just saying stuff? Chad, did you see this headline about former UFC fighter Zalem Imadov? This is a headline from Bloody Elbow. Former UFC fighter praises Chechen teen who beheaded French teacher. Yeah, no, I did see that. That, uh, this is a... Kind of a scary one, honestly, because uh, you have a what sounds like a uh, Chechen teen, uh, an eighteen-year-old Chechen refugee, refugee who beheaded a high school history teacher in France, uh, and then was shot dead by police shortly afterward. And uh, these guys, these these fighters out there, saying, "Hey, you know, like, good job, way to go." I guess when I see stuff like this. The thing I want to just say here is that sometimes when we talk about how, hey, there are in other places political regimes looking to use MMA as a sport and MMA fighters as a political kind of chip in their favor and being associated with those people is actually kind of a big deal and a a worrisome deal that we should actually pay attention to and not just uh, like – Oh, hey, you get to be friends with whoever you want to be friends with, especially if they're giving you free money to appear in pictures with them and stuff like that. Just saying stuff like this reminds you that that stuff actually kind of matters because some of these people out here just saying like, oh, yeah, hey, this is what we would like to see is somebody beheaded for saying and doing things that we disagree with. Um, That's some for real shit, man. And that's some stuff that's still going on. So maybe we should take some of those associations a little more seriously. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, on a lighter note, Ben, uh, did you see AJ McKee over here was on, uh, I believe, MMA Junkie Radio this past week. And uh, he's talking about Patricio Pitbull, one of the champ champs. I guess the lone standing champ champ over there in Bellator has the uh, lightweight title and the featherweight title. McKee says he wants to fight Pitbull in back-to-back title fights at both weight classes and take both this man's belts. Here's the quote. I'm going to do it like Drake said, back-to-back. 
I want both of them back to back. I'm going to give Pitbull a little warm up. Now, we've been talking a lot about stuff Bellator can do to mm-hmm. drum up a little interest, do some stuff that is different than the UFC is doing without straying too far over the line into just straight clown behavior. This is one of those things. I would be okay. super into it if we said we were going to do a doubleheader, lightweight, featherweight title fights, AJ McKee against Patricio Pitbull. So if he's going to say it like Drake, I'm just saying I'm going to say it like little John. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> wow. That's a, that's a, first of all, that's a decent little John okay. on your I've part. Never, that's not bad. Before you saw the, you saw both You've the dress rehearsal and the Come live on. performance here You've on the podcast. You, I was in grad school with you circa 2004. You, you've done it before. It's possible, uh, but I don't remember any of those times. Yeah. yeah so probably Uh silly question here, but if you fought him at 145 pounds, wouldn't couldn't that also count as the because it's like no, you don't, don't have to weigh 155 do pounds? Don't, All right. don't, okay, fine. just let's have some fun. You're right. Back to back title fights. You're right. Can we do that? I'm just saying. Sure. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks everybody for joining us. Don't forget. We got fun stuff all week over on the Patreon page, including Wednesday's live chat, our viewing and discussion of the film Gone Girl as part of our ongoing famous film director retrospective are the last movie by David Fincher that we're going to be watching and discussing. And then, of course, back on Friday for another power hour. And like we told you at the top of the show, Friday afternoon at UFC 254 Fight Party, we'll have the sign up sheet posted at the Patreon today or tomorrow. Don't dilly dally. Sign up for that thing so you can join us on the Zoom chat. We'll be doing UFC 254 all afternoon. Hope to see you there. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You're the type of guy who's going to be out here saying, let's just do it in one fight. Poking logical holes in my fun promotional idea. Your fun promotional idea? Yeah, I'm trying to have a little fun. Say we should do this. We should do back to back. Okay, I guess if you want to be a stickler, say it's AJ McKee's fun promotional idea. But if you want to be factually accurate, say it's AJ McKee came up with the idea you heard and then decided to jump on board with. Also, though, kind of telling on yourself that Lil John is the the rapper you want to reference. Well, he goes with a pretty contemporary Drake reference. Who else says it's okay? Who else says I'm into it? Like what's the? I don't know, man. That's kind of the I guess you're, kids. I guess you're right. Could have brainstormed some more rapper catchphrases and come up with a different one, but uh, that, that one just seemed applicable, seemed appropriate. There you go. I don't know what's the what's the one of those rappers with the tattoos all over his face who doesn't really rap. They must have catchphrases, right? You're right, but I wouldn't know it. They mumble nothing but that the entire song. <laughs> <laughs>